Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, this is Anna North, and I write for Vox about topics like care work, families, and reproductive health. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Olivia Lang is a writer who goes both broad and deep. In her nonfiction, she often melds art criticism, history, political commentary, and memoir. She's writing about the world, but she's also writing about herself and her place in it. And the way she writes invites readers to consider their own place, too. I first encountered Olivia Lang through her 2016 work, The Lonely City. This was a book about art, isolation, and her time in New York City. And it made me, personally, feel less alone. Her latest book is Everybody, a book about freedom. And it's an examination of the ways in which our bodies as human beings can be persecuted, violated, imprisoned, or policed by the state or other people. But this book is also about how our bodies can be liberated through art and music, through sex, and through activism. Ever since I read The Lonely City, I've been fascinated with the way Lang can meld really incisive political commentary with these shimmering meditations on her own emotional life and the lives of others. So when it comes to her latest book and what it means to be a human body in the world in 2021, I had a lot to ask her. Olivia, welcome. Thanks for talking with me today. I am very happy to be here, and I'm very impressed by how concisely you've just summed up quite a complicated book. So thank you for that, too. Well, I'm super excited to talk about all the complexities with you. So to start, I really just want to start with the title. Do you say everybody or everybody? (laughs) (laughs) You're not the first person to ask that. I say everybody, but it is deliberately meant to go in both directions, that it's about the everybody of us, but also every single different body. Right. That makes sense. Talk a little bit about how you came to this title and the subtitle. What do you want people to know about this book when they're you know, picking it up in a bookstore or when they're opening it for the first time? I think that I want them to see that this is a book that deals with the vexed subject of freedom, which I think is both vital in our moment and deeply contested in our moment. And then I'm going to be exploring that by way of our bodily existence, our bodily realities. So in terms of things like violence, like sexuality, like race, all of which are to do with how we live as bodies in the world, how we live as both individual independent bodies in the world, but also bodies that are regarded as representative types and treated very differently depending on what type they have been put into. 
And I want to I want to get into all that. I mean, and as you open onto it, you know, this is a book that draws really widely. It draws from the history of psychoanalysis, from American art, from the environmental movement in England. What was the initial germ of this book for you? It really came out of terror, let's just say. <laughs> I think it was, you know, it was that moment in 2015 where all across the world, and especially for me in Britain and in America, the two countries that I have the closest ties to, it felt like there was a major shift in terms of a movement to the right. And um, in Britain, Brexit was happening. In Europe, the refugee crisis was happening. In America, there was the rise of Trump and the rise of far-right white supremacy, really. And all of those things were terrifying. I was spending a lot of time on Twitter at the time and had a sense of just a breaking wave of bad news. And it seemed to me that a lot of the narratives that were going on were to do with bodies, to do with some kinds of bodies being disparaged, violated, humiliated in various different ways. And what I wanted to do was turn around and look back into the 20th century and try and ask why are bodies treated in that way? And also, is there a way in which our bodies, our vulnerable human bodies, can also be a source of power? And how have our bodies communally changed the world? How have we resisted those sort of treatments? Right. And speaking of sort of looking back into the past, I mean, the book keeps returning to Wilhelm Reich and to his life. Talk to me about who this person was, why you decided to center the book so much around him and why people don't know more about him today. Yeah, I didn't mean to do it. <laughs> I looked back at the proposal yesterday, oddly, and he was definitely in there, but there was no sense that he was going to take up such an enormous role. But I think what became apparent as I was working on the book is that his life traveled very widely through lots of different regions of bodily experience. He spans a great time period. So he goes from Freud's Vienna to Hitler's Berlin to Senator McCarthy's America. He takes us through physical illness, sexuality. He's an anti-fascist activist. He ended up in a prison cell. So all of these different regions of bodily experience that I wanted to investigate, Reich somehow had been in and he was a way that I could really make a through line through what would otherwise, I think, have been a very diverse and bitty sort of a book. And as for the reason why people don't know more about him, I think what happened with Reich is that he had some astonishing ideas in the 1920s and 30s. He had really radical ideas about what our bodies carry, the kind of traumas our body carry. He had ideas of marrying together the ideas of Sigmund Freud and Marx. He had all sorts of ideas about what fascism means. But then he has this sort of cataclysmic breakdown as the rise of Hitler is happening. And he ends up in America and really becomes a pseudoscientist, a crank. And I think that the reason that we don't think about him more is because that's the Reich that stayed in circulation. And that's the Reich that people remember. He had the organ accumulator, he had the cloud buster, he had these sort of slightly wacky inventions. And Ideas that really, if not absolutely pseudoscientific, certainly are on the threshold of that. So I think that's why he has been abandoned as a thinker. But I had a strong sense that there was more to him than that. Olivia, what is organ energy? What is Wilhelm Reich's idea of organ energy? So this is a concept that Reich cooked up after he came to America. And he believed that there was a sort of energy. I've spent a long time trying to work out how to explain what Reich thought, because obviously <laughs> I, I personally don't subscribe to it. But I think what he was thinking of was a kind of energy force that 
not only runs through people, but also runs through the universe. It's life energy, it's vitality. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best way of understanding it. And I think it is also pretty closely related to what Freud called libido, which isn't just sexual energy, but is the thing that makes us us, the sort of essence of energy that fills us all. And it's very hard to talk about these things without sounding very sort of woo-woo and like you're on goop. But I think we all actually recognize when somebody is alive with energy, when somebody's just fallen in love or somebody's had good news. And on the other hand, I think we know when somebody's energy is very low and they're depressed and they're closed in. I think, you know, as animals, we respond to those sort of things. But when we talk about them, it sounds much more difficult. Right. No, that makes sense. And and it's called organ because it's like a compound of orgasm, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think I'm right. And I, I learned about this term like well before I ever learned about this person. You know, I learned about it like in college in California and not that anybody believed it then or there, but I, it still kind of permeates, you know, a certain kind of crunchy California like new ageness. Yeah. Yeah, and I think his ideas flow into the counterculture, then into the new age, and then into wellness. And this is a thread of his ideas, not the ideas that I'm particularly drawn to, but he absolutely does inform those things. So if anybody remembers the band Devo, they were this sort of like high concept band. They wore these very silly hats, (laughs) and the hats were based on Wilhelm Reich. They were energy domes for concentrating organ energy from the head. And I mean, I think for Devo, that was like all a joke. But I, I think for Reich, this was a quite real thing. Talk to me about, you know, what were the organ accumulators? Chart for us a little bit, like, his track from real or quasi-real science to pseudoscience, and, and how do these things link up? Um, you see the problem I've had when we start talking about the hats, and I've seen these hats. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> right, And the way I knew Reich was through the Kate Bush song Cloud Busting, mm-hmm. which is, you know, about his adventures in America. I still- Tell us, tell us what a cloudbuster is. Anna, it's a giant space gun. <laughs> and what what Wright was doing with the cloudbuster is he believed that he could shoot at clouds and he could make it rain. And this is why you get these beautiful lines in Kate Bush's cloudbusting of this constant idea of making rain. And when you watch the video, he's using the cloudbuster and he's making it rain. And this is very much late Reich. He's sort of driving around the desert with his son and what he believed, creating rain to help the farmers. And Mm -hmm. it's very hard to know what to do with that. Um, So the initial Reich is a young man in Vienna in the 1920s. He served as a soldier in the First World War and he becomes Freud's student, but also protégé. In fact, Freud's most brilliant protégé and begins to practice as a psychoanalyst in his 20s. And he has this revelation that he is seeing patients day after day, and they are talking to him or they're not talking to him, but he has this strong sense that what they are really experiencing, the kind of traumas that they are finding it so hard to express verbally, are absolutely there in their bodies. They're held in their musculature. They are there in terms of how they smile, that they've got an expression of a snarl, that they look terrified all the time, that their bodies are rigid or clamped. And what he thought happened is that every traumatic experience that happens that isn't felt, especially in childhood, gets lodged in the body. And that we're also constantly given 
messages from our parents, from society that tell us not to feel, that clamp down on feeling, that say things like boys don't cry or girls don't sit like that. So those things get sort of trapped inside the body. This is the first of Reich's revelations. And then the second one is that it isn't just about your personal life, as Freud believed. It isn't just about the constellation of the family. He was seeing working class patients. He worked in the ambulatorium, Vienna, and this was a free clinic. So the kind of patients he saw were not at all the bourgeoisie of Vienna. And he realized that people were struggling with social factors, political factors. They were struggling with things around work or housing or poverty. And he began in this period to read Marx as well and to start putting together a sort of revolutionary new theory of how trauma affects a person, but also how a person can change the world that they inhabit. And part of this is to do with sexuality, that he thought that sex was a force for good, that if people could have unbridled sexual lives, and I don't mean unbridled in the sense of do anything you want, but in terms of not being subject to the sort of censorious punishments that especially affected women in that period, then they would be much freer. And what is wild to me about Reich is that these things he was saying, that women should be able to have a sexual life without the fear of violence and with the right to abortion, we still haven't achieved that. Those things that he dreamt of 100 years ago, where are they? They still haven't been completely secured. Right. Um, And I want to get to the point where he sort of has his breakdown, too. But talk to me a little more about, you know, how these ideas apply today. I mean, you know, especially these ideas of sort of trauma and pain being rooted in the body now when we're in what has been such an incredibly painful year for so many people around the world. I think this is the idea of Reich's that I find most um, easy to believe, really, is that we are all carrying around both an individual burden in terms of the things that have happened to us as a person, but then also a sequential burden to that that's about the things that have happened because of the kind of body that we have, because of the kind of experiences that we have that aren't to do with us as an individual, but are to do with the colour of skin, gender, sexuality. And those factors mean that people have levels of trauma that are very difficult to address. And what Reich thought is that the answer to those things isn't what we might call today self-care. The answer to those is political change. And he really believed in activism. He believed in bodies in the streets. He was a passionate anti-fascist activist in Berlin in the 1930s in a cell with the writer Arthur Kessler. Right. And this is a place where he sort of breaks with Freud, right? That Freud doesn't believe that psychoanalysis should be political in this way? This is the great breach, I think. Freud thinks as the Nazis come to power and as Hitler becomes more and more visible as a figure, Freud thinks the way for psychoanalysis to survive is to be absolutely politically neutral. That's the only way that he's going to save this thing that he's created and keep it going into the later part of the 20th century. And Reich just rolls his eyes at that. (laughs) I think, you know, he really understood that that was impossible. That's not something that you're going to be able to do. And he argued very passionately that When the um, polyclinic in Berlin, the Nazis wanted to take it over and aronize it. And Reich said, there's absolutely no way you can do that. You have to shut it down. You have to resist this. You cannot practice under fascism because fascism is a totalizing system and it will change and subvert psychoanalysis, which he was absolutely correct about. 
It's so fascinating because, I, you know, these arguments about whether psychoanalysis should be political seem to echo arguments that we're still having about whether art should be political, whether journalism should be political, all this. It feels very relevant today. But I want to talk to, you know, talk to me about what happens to Reich at the end of his life. I mean, something I think that I was thinking through how to piece this together in your book was how do we think about someone whose ideas in some ways are so prescient? And then at the end of his life, you know, he becomes paranoid, although you note that they were after him. So, you know, the U.S. government was, in fact, persecuting him. Yeah. But he did have all these ideas that, you know, like building a box to concentrate organ energy that may not be as applicable today. So talk to me about how we think about sort of the complex trajectory of his life. I think this is something that I wrestled with for the five years that I was writing the book. It was very hard to make sense of. But I think really what happened is the breach with Freud was very destructive to Reich. And we know that when Freud broke away from his disciples, and he did it to Jung, he did it to Adler, that those people ended up committing suicide. People really struggled with that kind of cutoff, absolute brutal cutoff. Freud is magnificent in many ways, but he also had this side to him. And I think what happened with Reich is that the pain of that rejection made him determined that he would prove his ideas, which are basically metaphorical, which work on a sort of symbolic level. He would try and prove them biologically. He'd try and prove them in experiments. And this is the Reich that arrives in America. He immediately sets up a laboratory and he tries to prove that there is a kind of life energy, which he calls orgone, and that he then tries to build tools that will harness it. So this person who is out in the streets, you know, struggling against fascists is suddenly in a basement in his house in the suburbs of New York. And he's building a box that he sits in for hours and hours each day, thinking that this is somehow a way to liberate his body. And no, I mean, it, it's so interesting in your book and just in this person's life, thinking about someone who, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but who clearly had these ideas that were really ahead of their time. And then these ideas that seem, you know, very ridiculous. And I don't even want to also poke fun at someone who was also yeah. clearly like really suffering. Yeah, it's, it's hard. And I, actually, I think a useful way of thinking about them in a way that I did find myself thinking about them is they're almost like art objects. And if you looked at them as art objects, then it would be very easy for you to read them and think, oh, this is about these forces. And this is about a sense of being under attack. And both the cloud buster and the organ accumulator, this sort of telephone cubicle sized box that he sat inside, that people sat inside, they are objects that tell us all sorts of things about paranoia, attack, sanctuary. So that's probably, for me, a better way of reading them than to try and relate them in the terms that he believed as sort of medical devices or as scientific devices, which I think they really fall down on it. They do become laughable, but actually, I don't think they are laughable. I just think they've been moved into the wrong discipline. Right. I mean, and it, it occurs to me, too, that the organ accumulator, like if it's, you know, basically just a box that you sit in. It just sounds like meditation to me, which also has been shown to have benefits. And I meditate and, you know, it's not all that different from things that people are doing all the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a tragic thing. And it then kicks off the whole tragedy of Reich's later life, which is that the Food and Drug Administration became aware of this box and persecuted him to an astonishing degree. It it took many, many years. It cost $2 million. And at the end of it, when he was found guilty, there was a book burning. And Reich is the only person whose books have been burnt by the government on American soil. And the books that were burned included The Mass Psychology of Fascism, which was also burnt by the Nazis. 
So this story isn't just about him being a pseudoscientist. There's something else about him that is profoundly unsettling, I think. Let's take a quick break. But when we're back, just why was Wilhelm Reich so unsettling? He certainly wasn't the first person with scientific credentials to speak out and embrace somewhat questionable ideas. But what was it about Reich's ideas that inspired an arm of the U.S. government to pursue and punish him so harshly? We'll find out after the break. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Just to make clear, you know, for listeners, so this is someone who was basically persecuted by the United States Food and Drug Administration for spreading information about organ accumulators to the point that he was thrown in jail. Like he was jailed for basically having pseudoscientific ideas. He was jailed. Yeah. And I mean, when I was going through the testimonies and the actual case that the Food and Drug Administration brought against him, a lot of what they use as claims that he's making are actually illustrations of cases that he thought didn't work. And he's very explicit about that. When you go back to the source material that they're referring to, he isn't making those sort of claims, which isn't to say that the device isn't pseudoscientific. And he certainly does talk about it having potential to cure cancer. But one of the most touching things he says in his diary during this persecutory period is, I demand the right to be wrong. And That is essential for scientists as it is essential for artists and all of us who are trying to think into new territories. It has to be possible to be wrong. And the kind of punishment that he had is so drastically outside the sort of crime that he's supposedly committing, a crime that didn't do any harm to anybody. Why was he so threatening to the US government? Lots of people have always preached pseudoscience in America. It's sexuality, I think. I think that when you look at the FDA's own records, they believed on some level that he was running some kind of perhaps a porn ring, perhaps just something dirty that was going on. They quizzed people at his compound in Maine about nudity and sex parties. And Reich actually is kind of, you know, he's a sexual liberationist, but also sort of a Puritan. He didn't really like free love. He didn't really like that sort of bohemian model of of sexuality, what he believed in was a sort of sexual encounter that would allow people to open to their feelings. That's very different from get your rocks off. (laughs) It's so interesting to hear about this, you know, when obviously we've had such a year of pseudoscience in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think this is, is a good place maybe to even broaden out beyond Reich and talk a little bit about, you know, again, like this book was about so many things. It was hard for me to think, how am I going to introduce this? You know, in addition to Reich's life, it opens out onto so many things, including you talk about cancer, you talk about the prison industrial complex, about white supremacy, climate change. Talk to me a little bit about how did you bring all these topics back to the body and back to this idea of bodily freedom? I think what I wanted to understand was why is it so hard to inhabit a body? 
what are the ways in which it can be so hard to inhabit a body? And then, of course, what are the ways in which it can be liberating? So I had sets of experiences that I really wanted to explore. I wanted to explore illness. And then because I was following this sort of Reikian trajectory, it made sense that the kind of illness I could explore was cancer because Susan Sontag, Reich's in some ways greatest critic, had written illness as metaphor about Reich. And this is the book where she's really struggling with her own diagnosis of cancer and trying to make sense of what illness means. So what Reich let me do is go into different sort of rooms of bodily experience and then be very specific about the sort of story I could tell there. And I think the same thing is true with prison, that Reich happened to end up in Lewisburg Penitentiary. And that prison had a fascinating history. It began as a reform prison, a really radical prison. And the civil rights activist Bayard Rustin was there. And this is somebody who really thought about imprisonment and incarceration in lots of different ways. So allowing Reich to kind of lead me into different spaces meant that I would encounter different activists, artists, different figures who had looked at the subjects that he was looking at from very different angles. And this is what I'm always doing as a writer is trying to find people who will come at the same subject from different places. I never want to tell a story just from my own perspective because I want to kind of get behind it and get in front of it simultaneously. Right. And speaking of, you know, sort of different artists and different creators looking at things from different angles, I was really especially fascinated in the book with the section on Anna Mendieta and her life and her art. I'd love to talk a little bit more about her. For our listeners who might not be familiar, can you talk a little bit more about her and who she was? Absolutely. She was just a truly extraordinary artist, I think. And it's very much worth just Googling her name and and looking at the images that come up. She was Cuban-American and she came over to America on the Peter Pan flights, which was children whose um, parents were troubled by the Castro government, frightened by the Castro government, and wanted to send their children to what they believed was going to be sanctuary with Catholics in America. It turned out it really wasn't sanctuary at all. And a lot of them ended up in orphanages and foster homes in conditions of real brutality. And Mendieta, Anna Mendieta was one of those children. And she went to art school in Iowa and began making the art of her maturity Almost immediately, it's astonishing to me how accomplished and powerful the student work that she made was. The first sort of really serious piece she made was a way of encountering and making sense of a rape that had happened on campus, rape and murder of a student. And she she reenacted it. She made a reenactment of it. And a lot of her work was like this. It was performance-based. It was live in the moment, but then she would record it by way of photographs and films, which is what we still have now. And these works are sort of really, really address the question of violence to women. They are uncompromising in their vision and yet strangely beautiful and eerie as well. As she became older, she started making work that they're called the silhouettes and they're a carving of a very um, sort of symbolised version of a woman's body carved into ice or burned into the earth or cut and allowed to fill up with water. So they're both about violence, but also just the everyday violence of mortality, the fact that we come from nowhere and we go to nowhere. So they're extraordinarily beautiful. Now, There's this artist who spent her life meditating on different kinds of violence. And what happened to her is that she fell, I'm using the word fell in inverted commas, out of the top floor window of an apartment building in New York City and 
was killed and she fell out of a window that was well above her body height. She was a very small woman and she was with her husband, the artist Carl Andre, and they'd had a fight and there was a trial for her murder. He was tried for her murder and found not guilty. I'm leaving a pause because there is a pause after that. It's not clear what happened to Anna Mendieta and many people think that she was murdered and other people think that it was some sort of extraordinary accident, a truly extraordinary accident, which I find hard to understand. So she vanishes. She is no longer there. And she was somebody who I absolutely had to write about. I knew from the very beginning that I thought of writing a book about bodies that Anna Mendieta had to be in it. Yeah. You touched on this a tiny bit, but there are some lines about her work in the book that I really love. And you're talking about, you know, when you you saw her work for the first time, you say there was something immensely freeing about seeing those bodily forms melt or be washed away as if some knot in my own body was also being eased apart. They attested to fluidity and they also made a distinction, a gap between the native violence of bodily existence and the violence of misogyny. Talk a little bit more to me about that gap and how she's sort of mining that in her art, especially given the fact that she, you know, may well have died by violence herself. I think the work starts out being very much about the kind of violence that is one person enacting violence onto another person. And those works are, you know, vital, very, very important, political, alive to the sort of world we live in right now, which, again, hasn't changed that much since the 1970s in terms of violence to women. But I think as she got older, she became interested in, you know, she was an artist who was fascinated by nature and fascinated by the kinds of intrinsic violence of nature, the fact that just by virtue of living inside a body, we undergo various kinds of violence that aren't to do with somebody abusing us, but are to do with existing in a vehicle that is mortal, that is vulnerable, that is porous. And I feel like this is a revelation that we have all had over the last year. If you've been lucky enough not to have had that revelation at an earlier date in your life, then the COVID crisis has made it absolutely clear that we are wide open. We're absolutely vulnerable to to each other and to random viruses, to random accidents. And that's what I mean about the sort of two different kinds of violence or vulnerability that she's exploring. It's so interesting. I mean, I I think you deal so well in your book and you really trouble this concept, the concept of sort of, quote, violence against women, you know, because I think you're right. It seems that Mendieta's work was a lot about this, you know, and then you also talk about the way that the gender binary and even the sort of concept of like violence against women can be reductive. I know you talk about when the artist Agnes Martin saying, I'm not a woman, I'm a doorknob. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's the best line in the book. I love it. I want that as a (laughs) t-shirt. It's so good. I mean, maybe tell us just really quickly who Agnes Martin was and talk a little bit about that line and what she was responding to. Agnes Martin. Um, Agnes Martin is an abstract, was an abstract painter. She was actually Canadian, but became an American citizen. And she spent her life sort of oscillating between New Mexico and New York. So sometimes living in quite an urban life and sometimes very, very rural. She built her own house. She was really like a pioneer style character. And she made these abstract paintings that are instantly recognisable because they're a grid. And when you stand up close to them, you can see that they are pencilled lines on six by six canvases, very austere, very intensely worked. But when you step away, there's a sense that they sort of blur and shimmer and become these very radiant fields of colour. And 
quite an extraordinary sort of, I mean, you could call it a trick, but it also feels like it's more magical than that. And she was a lesbian and she lived in a very closeted way through the period of the 20th century that was intensely homophobic. And the fact that she was a lesbian is often sort of disregarded by critics as if it's slightly embarrassing. And I, I wanted to think about the reasons why it might have been difficult for her to declare her gender and to explore the sort of state-sponsored homophobia that was present in America at the time in the 1950s and the 1960s. But the <laughs> woman doorknob quote comes when um, somebody says to her, you know, how do you feel as a woman artist? And, you know, every woman artist feels like rolling their eyes when they're asked that question. <laughs> how do you feel as a male artist? Um, right. But she just has this great answer. She's like, I'm not a woman. I'm a doorknob. And it's like a Zen Cohen. It's like, I refuse category. Yeah. And that <laughs> that was just so exciting to me. Like, you know, as a non-binary person, the, the sense of constantly being forced into these categorizations that seem natural to people who are naturally absorbed by them, naturally fit into them. But people who don't are aware that they are violently enforced, ongoingly violently enforced. And I think watching her explode category with that much um, teasing fun is, yeah. it's joyful. Yeah, that line will stick with me for a long time. <laughs> you know, and, and you you kind of keep coming back to these questions throughout the book. You talk about actually Andrea Dworkin, who's thought of as this sort of, you know, very radical feminist of a certain stripe, actually wanting to break down the idea of a gender binary. You talk about your own non-binary identity and sort of your journey toward recognizing that. And I, I want to come back to this idea of violence against women because mm. it's something... You know, something that I've, I've actually struggled with to how to cover as someone who's been like, quote unquote, a gender reporter at various times. I've worked at women's, you know, again, quote unquote, women's websites before. And I've always really struggled with how to think about gender with respect to sexual assault and domestic violence and the whole idea of these kinds of violence as women's issues. It's like certainly true that women often experience them disproportionately. Then there are also so many people who aren't women who experience sexual and relationship violence. Um, there are ways in which these types of violence can even be used used to reinforce the gender binary. So I just would love to hear you talk a little bit about how, if at all, you thought about these issues in your book. How did you think about the role that gender plays in the ways that our bodies experience the world and the ways that our bodies experience violence? I feel like gender is one of the categories that we're placed in. And I feel like there are things that happen to people who are put in the category of women's body. And that felt more helpful to me to think about than to necessarily entirely buy into the concept of woman, that these are things that happen to women. But our bodies are forcibly present. For many people, that feels absolutely natural and fine. But for people on the threshold of those experiences, it doesn't feel so natural. Right. You know, we know that the people who experience astonishingly high levels of domestic and street violence are trans women. Yep. So it feels helpful to me to think that there's this sort of umbrella category that people might be in permanently or they might be moving in and out of. And that, that category, for many reasons, is made vulnerable by other people's behaviour. And there's something that you said there that I thought was really interesting of like, we, we talk about these as women's issues, but yeah. clearly they're not women's issues, they're men's issues. Right. Why do we look at them as not the issue and the responsibility of the person who is the perpetrator? And this has been coming up in the UK so much recently because there was a murder yeah. of a woman by a police officer and it sparked off almost a new series of Reclaim the Night marches, which is the 1970s feminist movement. And people were again just 
feeling this sense of how have we not moved on from this? How are we still in these places? How is Andrea Dawkin feeling like she's writing right into our moment when we should be decades on from her? Absolutely. Because um, I have a question about sort of time and progress and something that like really stuck out to me and you must have done a lot of work to make this happen, but it's quite subtle is sort of the way that you handle time and space in the book. And you're always so careful to point out when two people who might maybe seem far apart by some measures were contemporaries or they lived in almost the same place. Like you mentioned like Nina Simone being born just a month after Susan Sontag, for example. And that really, at least for me, it sort of invited me to do the same thing. And so when I'm reading the Mendieta section, she was doing this art in part in response to the rape and murder of a woman in Iowa City in 1973. And so I lived in Iowa City like about 35 years later. I remember and, and remember going to all those places where it turns out her art was set, although I didn't. I was familiar more with her life than with her art before I read your book, which is perhaps sad. But anyway, when I lived in Iowa City myself, I remember a series of sexual assaults that happened there. Um, and there was this fear in the air and my friends, you know, like sleeping with the lights on for a while. And then there was also a woman, I was a graduate student, but there was an undergraduate who reported that she was sexually assaulted by two football players there. It was this major story. And, you know, some university officials had to resign. Anyway, so all this gave me sort of a despairing feeling as I was reading your book. You know, all the time signposting that you do, it does to some degree show us how little things seem to change over time. You know, that like the same problems that Mendieta was responding to, you know, were still so clearly present more than 30 years later. And talk a little bit about how you thought about time in the book and about the idea of progress. Like, are we progressing toward any kind of freedom for ourselves or our bodies? I think where I came in was feeling despair of... Somehow, perhaps naively, I'd believed that the liberation struggles of the 20th century, once secured, were secured in perpetuity. And therefore, what was happening around 2015, 2016 was terrifying. Like, this isn't the way that history is supposed to go. We're supposed to be working towards continual improvement and gradually gaining liberation for all beings. And I don't understand how this is happening in this direction. And obviously, many liberation struggles had never been achieved at all. So, you know, it wasn't like there was an end to the patriarchy or to white supremacy, but there were certain battles that seemed to have been won that were being rolled back. Abortion is a perfect example of that. Trans rights also. So seeing those rollbacks felt very frightening. And I think part of what I wanted to do with this book was to travel back into the 20th century and to try and understand how liberation struggles had actually worked. So it isn't unidirectional at all. It's this constant sense of pushing away and then failures and then achieving something small. And, you know, many of the people in this book into states of absolute despair. Nina Simone is an example of that. I think Andrew Dworkin is an example of that. But at the same time, their lives remain for us as these sort of beacons of courage and power. And what I came away thinking, and, you know, what I really hope, especially with younger readers of the book, is this sense that liberation struggle is something we participate in. It's a work that extends far beyond our lifespans in both directions. And I think if you have this idea that you have to achieve something absolutely and forever, you will be disappointed and disappointment is a cousin to despair. But if you think that you're just participating, you're doing the part that you can do in something that is far greater, then I think it's easier to stay hopeful. And hope is our engine. Hope is what keeps us going. Yeah. 
Makes sense. I like the idea of just participating. That's powerful to me. I don't want you to feel like we're going to keep you forever. This is we're entering into my last (laughs) section of questions here. But I did want to talk a little bit more about, you know, the time that we're living in now. So, you know, you do mention COVID-19 a couple times in the book, but I would imagine that a lot of it had to have been written before the pandemic. So talk a little bit more about how you've been thinking about these ideas, you know, our bodies in the world, each person's freedom, how it intersects with the freedoms of other people during this time of, of deep bodily trauma and also of this kind of problematic discourse about what we're free to do? I think it it was a very odd experience to be finishing the book last spring as the COVID crisis was happening across the world and for people to be experiencing that level of bodily precarity and terror, but also for everybody to go back into their homes, back into their apartments and live these very sequestered lives where all congress, all communication is happening by way of the internet. And I think, you know, when I was writing the book, it felt as if it was almost sort of an argument of, remember our bodies, our bodies are really powerful, hey guys. <laughs> right. And what's actually happened is that everybody's like, wow, bodily life. Yeah. How incredible to be in a dance floor or in a room with friends or at a protest march. So yeah. I think we've all got this sort of renewed enthusiasm for the sense that something different happens when people's bodies are together something different happens if you're physically present with somebody and then also I was finishing it as that great wave of Black Lives Matter protests were happening across the world and to have spent all of this time writing about the civil rights movement and see the sort of next flowering of the civil rights movement happening is extraordinary. And I think that's what I mean about the struggle continues. It takes different forms. But to think that these forces of violence and supremacist thinking and hatred can be vanquished, I think is very naive. They are very powerful forces, but so is the force for freedom. So is the desire for everybody to have a life where they're not judged by the kind of body they live inside. Right. I'm glad that you brought up um, the protests in the summer and the sort of flowering of this new civil rights movement, because I wanted to get to that, too. And one thing, you know, sorry for the sort of bluntness of this question, but I wanted to ask you if you're white. Oh, yeah, I'm white. I never want to, you know, assume based on someone's photo or anything. But the reason I ask is in this book, you write a lot about race and racism and about white supremacy and the movements for civil rights for black Americans in particular. And sometimes these are topics that I write about. I'm a white writer and I have my own difficulties trying to write about them well. I'm curious how you approach these topics as a white writer. And, you know, you're also someone who's inhabited other marginalized identities. You're non-binary. You talk about being the child of gay parents. So how do you sort of think and write about kinds of, you know, really bodily persecution and unfreedom that aren't like the ones that you've directly experienced? I think what I was trying to do is I think white supremacy is a white person's problem in the same way that I was just saying, you know, violence to women is it's men's problem in a lot of ways. I think that it is absolutely the responsibility of the white person to understand that system and to understand how that system can be dismantled. And that was why I wanted to put Philip Guston in the book, because he seemed like somebody who had really grappled with that work of trying to, you know, he made these paintings of the Ku Klux Klan over the, through the 1960s. And they're sort of an extraordinary attempt to try and look at the ugliness of whiteness. And that seemed to me really crucial work. And 
it felt important to me to do that. And then again, there's something where Anna Mendieta is asked, like, you made this work about rape, what do you think? And she said, I I don't know whether it was right or not right, but I felt I had to do it. And I think it's the same for me. It felt like this is the contribution I can make to one of the most important struggles of our time, which is this horrifying system of white supremacy that has gone on for centuries. And I don't think there's a person alive who, who doesn't have some part to play in dismantling that, whether that's understanding how your power or privilege is taking away from other people's. You know, it's easy to be like, here's my marginalized identity, I'm a trans person and I can speak from that. But to speak from the point of white privilege, I think is also vital and much less comfortable. Yeah, Um, that makes total sense. It's interesting that you bring up the artist Philip Gustin, and I thought those sections were really fascinating. You know, this was an artist who, I think I'm remembering this right, had been, you know, sort of an abstract artist and really celebrated. And then when he began to make these paintings of the KKK, people were like, oh, this is so passe, like this isn't a problem anymore. You know, why are you talking about this sort of? (laughs) It's just obviously from our vantage today or even then fairly horrifying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's got another lovely line where he says, every time I saw an abstract painting, I smell mink coats. He just wants to be in the real world and he wants to be doing something with his painting. It's not that I think every artist has to do that, but I very much admire Augustine for deciding that that was what he was going to turn his gaze to. Okay, we're going to take one more short break. But when we come back, the pandemic, for a lot of us, has meant a kind of forced disembodiment and a deprivation of being physically near other people. So when it comes to our relationship with our own bodies, what does Olivia Lang think about the effects of this long period of social distancing and lockdowns? That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To come back to COVID-19 and lockdown for a minute, you know, you do talk in your book a lot about sort of identity formation as a young person. And, you know, you mentioned this, too, that we all sort of were disembodied last year. And some of us have the privilege to kind of come back and be re-embodied a little bit now. But what do you think will be the effect of this long period of disembodiment on people's sense of self and especially on young people's sense of self? 
I do not know, and I worry about it, but the people who I particularly worry about are teenagers, you know, sort of 16, 17, 18, and then early university, that period where you're beginning to fly the nest and you're shifting your allegiance from your family to other peers that you're meeting and that you're encountering. And the sort of hobbling of that, the necessary hobbling of that that's happened this year, I can't imagine how difficult it is. I just, I think of myself at that age and how necessary it was to be able to leave home and to be able to start a new life. And I don't know that I have anything particularly helpful to say about what it might mean or what its consequences might be apart from that I feel intensely for them. Yeah. Can you talk about what it was like for you to be, you know, perhaps a little bit disembodied during this year when you were like finishing up the book and getting ready to get it out in the world? Yeah. I mean, England has had, um, well, we've been in lockdown now since about November and it's just starting to lift. So it's interesting now I look back with nostalgia to the New York loneliness period that I had where it was like, but there were so many people around. <laughs> I could eat in restaurants. <laughs> so it's been really punishing. I, I'm married, so my husband was around, but to not have friendship was hard. But I, I'm realizing as I'm starting to go out again that actually just to not be around strangers, to not have a yeah. sense that other people were in the world too, going through their sort of realities that the days that I've had in London as lockdown has lifted here have felt almost ecstatic for no more reason than just I can see other people's bodies around me and I would never have known that I would long for that as much as I did it, I'm shocked by it yeah no I'm, I, I read somewhere about the impact of a lack of small talk on people and it's way worse psychologically than you might expect and in my experience as we come out of lockdown here it's been the same where we're all just like super ecstatic to like talk to another parent on the playground all of a yeah. sudden and those those things those weak ties as sociologists describe them I knew that they were vital because of the work that I'd done on loneliness I knew how important yeah. they were but to to actually experience that for real and to have it all cut off is is an extraordinary experience and not one I would really like to have again <laughs> <laughs> yes um you know this I think applies to um the lonely city also which I love that you know there's a lot that's personal in this book but there's also the sense of privacy too I don't necessarily have the sense that I'm reading something confessional or that I like exactly know a lot about you after I've read it and talk a little bit about how you decide to write about yourself and your work what you put in what you leave out and how your personal stories kind of inform your historical and political material I'm very happy that you said that because um I really hate writing memoir. <laughs> it's not something that I enjoy and I would never want to be a confessional style writer. But I feel like the reason I do it is that I'm writing about subjects that I'm absolutely invested in. And and this has been true right through my career and right through all of my books. If If I'm writing about these difficult topics and writing about people's difficult lives, artists' difficult lives, it feels like it's almost morally necessary for me to do some of the same work and sh show some of the same material of my own. And, you know, I think if I'd written a book about loneliness that hadn't said I'm intensely lonely at the moment and that's why I'm doing this, it would have felt like a much more abstract academic survey. I mean, interesting material, but the, the sort of lifeblood of it is in some way gone. But I don't want to ever stay with my own story. It's it's a starting point, but then I want to travel and I want to see a, a subject from many other people's points of view. And that involves intensive archival work and 
a lot of attention to try and understand what they're thinking and then to relay it to a reader as much as possible in their own terms. Mm-hmm. So there's always a personal element, but it should never end there. And I think some of the things that I've talked about in books have felt very personal and very difficult and often shameful as well. But mm. I try and go in and out as fast yeah. as I can in a way. I try and sort of say it, give some information, but then back out because it's not about me. Right. Um and then my last question is just, you know, this book seems to open out onto a lot of other possibilities and, and you've done so many different things in your work and in your life, whether it's nonfiction, you wrote a novel, you've been an activist. What can you say, if anything, about what's next for you? Well, the, I feel like the books each open out into the next book. So Loneliness had a lot of bodies going on in it and I was very interested by those bodies. And this book ends with a sense of what kind of world could we build if we were free, if we were free of fear inside our own human bodies? Yeah. I mean, that is a question that needed further investigation. So the book that I'm writing now is really about utopias. It's about uh-huh. what people have thought better societies were in the past, and not just in the past, like the 20th century, but medieval ideas of paradise, mm-hmm. 17th century ideas of utopia. And what I really want to understand in that book is, does paradise always have to be something that's exclusive? Or is there a way that there can be a republic for all of us? And especially this question is urgently informed by climate change. What kind of world can we build if if we're engaged in these sort of freedom struggles? Where are we headed towards? And it feels to me like that's an urgent question, but also potentially a pleasurable question to investigate. Yeah, that sounds really fascinating. I'm excited to read that. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thanks so much for taking the time today. I've had such fun. Thank you so much for having me. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drazdowska. Paul Monsi mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. And hey, if you have future ideas for guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at Vox Conversations at Vox.com. And if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode. to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.